from Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 44. Daniel chapter 11, verse 44. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. He shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, we pray that you might incline our hearts to hear that through the preaching of the word of Christ, your people would be encouraged. Help us, O Lord, we ask in this time to glean the truth of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been here the last few weeks, by now you've become familiar with Daniel chapter 11. If you haven't been here, let me catch you up. It is the history of the world. Pretty much from the time of Daniel right to the very birth of Christ. In fact, Daniel chapter 12 that we just read a moment ago really is the coming of Jesus Christ the first time. And the spiritual resurrection that he brings and the deliverance that he brings for his people from Jew and Gentile. But chapter 11 is full of kings going back and forth. And prior to finishing the book of Daniel, I want us to look at something together. I want us to look at this conflict, but I want us to look at this conflict not just in the book of Daniel. But I want us to look at it over the course of all of the scriptures. Those of you who've been with us in this series in Daniel, you've gotten used to the phrases, zoom out and zoom in. And by that, what we mean is that sometimes Daniel will give us these visions that are very zoomed in, very specific The time period might be just 100 years or 200 years. But then there are other times where the book of Daniel zooms out. And it's as if we're seeing, as we do in chapter 11 and 12, a broad expanse of history. I want us to zoom out even further. I want us to see that the conflict in Daniel chapter 11 and the beginning of 12 is not just a Daniel thing. But the conflict here actually was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And I want us to trace that. Now, if you're a guest with us, let me just tell you how we normally do sermons here. The brothers that preach typically preach a passage. 
And we look at that passage and largely we stay there and we mine it as much as we are able by God's grace for all that we can. Then we move on to the next passage, often book by book. But before we leave Daniel, we will do, by God's grace, two other things. We will have had one time in a sermon where we looked at a doctrine arising from Daniel that we traced throughout the scripture. That was, who are the angels? More importantly, what do they teach us about Christ? That's kind of systematic theology, really. Taking a theme that is a doctrine and seeking to see it from Genesis to Revelation. But today, brothers and sisters, what I want us to do is something more akin to what is called biblical theology. It's to take a theme or a thread that shows up in the Bible in multiple places and trace it through the Bible. So not tracing a doctrine, but tracing a thread of the story of the Bible throughout the Bible. Because it might be tempting for us to look at Daniel chapter 11 and 12 and say, wow, that was 500 years of a lot of conflict. Sure, I'm glad I didn't live in those days. But you do, in a sense. Because the conflict of Daniel chapter 11 is the conflict of the Old Testament. As we'll see in the very last book of the Bible, it's the conflict of our time. Because... From Genesis 3.15 until the very end of the Bible, the promise is that there will be two seeds and they will be battling it out. But Christ will win. So I want us to zoom out quite a bit and see this theme. Now, Daniel chapter 11 traces a lot of leaders. We saw this. If you're just joining us, the Persian kings... Eventually being conquered by Alexander the Great, the great Greek king who dies rather quickly at a young age and his kingdom is divided, not among his children, but among other people into four. And then Daniel chapter 11 traces two of those four individuals. And it goes back and forth like a ping pong match all the way up to the horrible one, Antiochus Epiphanes about 170 years or so before the birth of Christ, does some horrible things. Shuts down the worship of God's people in Jerusalem. Does blasphemous kinds of sacrifices in the temple. But there is a revolt that comes, the Maccabean revolt. It's history, boys and girls, not just in Daniel, but in the history books. And some zealous, God-fearing Hebrews rise up. And eventually overthrow this syncretistic or mixing of God's ways with man's ways kind of people. But a new dynasty arises, the Hasmoneans. And eventually this dynasty of individuals will take some of the peoples from around Jerusalem and Judea and force them to be converted to Judaism or to the religion of the Jews at that time. Now, the reason that we say this is because we're going to meet one of them in Daniel chapter 11. His name is Herod. His family was from one of these families that was forced into conversion. He really belonged to the Idumeans, or if you want to use an Old Testament word, to the Edomites, to the family 
of Esau. What I want to do today is to show you how Herod and his family go all the way back practically to the garden. And that moment by moment, piece by piece, there has been a battle of two seas. Two families. Christ's family and Satan's family. In Daniel chapter 11, towards the very end, we read of a king in verse 36. We've made the case that that is King Herod. That King Herod seemingly does Jewish kinds of things, but he mixes with other empires like Rome. But he receives very difficult news in verse 44, doesn't he? We talked about what that news was. The news from the north likely is that two of his sons likely going to rebel against him. So he does what Herod often does. He kills people. He kills them. But then the text says in Daniel chapter 11, verse 44, that he receives news that's troubling from the east. And that news we read a few weeks ago was the news in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, when kings from the east came to tell him, we're here to worship the king of the Jews. And it's not you. And that troubles him. And the text says... That he goes out with fury to destroy and annihilate many. Boys and girls, do you remember what King Herod did when he received news that baby Jesus is to be born? He sends his soldiers to kill all the baby boys in a specific region that he can get their hands on. He kills many because he wants to wipe out a threat to his throne. Now, if we just... Think about this in political terms. We'll we'll know the story. We'll know the political drama. But brothers and sisters, the seed of Satan has always been trying to kill the seed of the woman. So Herod causes us, before we finish Daniel chapter 12, to look and to say the ping pong match between evil and the forces of Christ isn't just a 500-year battle in Daniel 11. So it's that thread that I want us to trace today. We'll see three simple things and make some application in our third point. The first thing that I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is the promise. The promise. Herod, whose family was Edomite, with connections to Esau of old, takes us all the way back to the garden. Now, boys and girls, we're going to be doing a lot of turning in our Bibles today. It's not often what we do in our sermons, but I just want to prepare you. Moms and dads, feel free to jot Scripture passages down. I'll read them. This might be a good little thread to review over lunch or this week. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you remember that God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden with a special law on their hearts. And He gave them one positive law, one rule that was outside That they could see, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's exactly what they did. So the living God comes and he speaks first to the serpent. Verse 14 of Genesis 3. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you should go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity, boys and girls, that's strife, battle, war, conflict. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed, 
and her seed. He, that is her seed, shall bruise your head. Some translations say crush your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Have you ever thought about the fact that in the very first few pages of the Bible, the first person, the first creature, to hear the news that Christ is going to crush evil was Satan? Because the seed of the woman is Christ. And all of Christ's people are the seed of Christ and his people. But the seed of the serpent very quickly becomes clear. Listen to the way the Puritan in the 1600s, John Owen, describes this text. He writes this, The promise that was the foundation of the Old Testament... It's a bold statement, and he's absolutely right. The promise that was the foundation of the Old Testament was the first promise of God, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. There shall always be a twofold seed in the world. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. They shall never fail while this world stands. These two seeds shall always be at enmity. The enmity is spiritual, but the warfare oftentimes is outward. The first manifestation of this enmity was in blood. Cain slew Abel. The victory shall always be to the seed of the woman. Then Zion is safe. This was the foundation of the Old Testament. And though things oftentimes were brought to great distress, yet this promise carried it and delivered over the church safe into the hand of Christ. End quote. He's absolutely right. There's a promise in Genesis 3.15. Christ is going to come, but that promise comes with a related promise. There's always going to be enmity between the people of Christ noted as the seed of the woman, and the people of Satan. And if you just read the Old Testament, it goes back and forth. That's the promise. You see, Daniel chapter 11 is just part of this unfolding promise. There's going to be a seed of Satan who is going to want to crush and wipe out the one who is to come and all of his people. That's the promise. But now, brothers and sisters, secondly, I want you to see the people. And again, this is a little different, but we're going to just walk from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Daniel 11. You remember, of course, that God eventually takes a man out of the desert and gives him a promise. His name was Abram. God changed his name to Abraham, and he said to him what? Abraham, in your seed... Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? He gives him a sign in his very flesh, the flesh of his body, with a promise. From your physical people will come the one that I promised in the garden. But there is a little bit of trouble, isn't there? Because Abraham gets old, as we all do. And his wife gets old, as we all do. Will God fulfill his promise? There's no seed. 
And you know the story. We won't turn there now. But through some suggestion, Abraham is convinced that the right thing to do would to be to bring about the seed, but not through Sarah, through Hagar, her maidservant. Thus comes the age-old story of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And we pick that story up in Genesis chapter 36. Genesis chapter 36. Turn there with me. Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. This is partly Herod's great, 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 great grandfather. Let's read of this continuing enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Moving down to Genesis 36, verse 12. Now, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek. It's going to be an important name, boys and girls. Amalek. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. The text continues. You see all of the chiefs coming out of Amalek. Esau is Edom, and Amalek is an Edomite. Ever wondered why there's so many names in the Bible? I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. The story of Amalek takes us into Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. Now the people of God have fast forwarded quite a while. They're freed from slavery in Egypt. But who comes against them? Exodus 17 verse 8. Now Amalek. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Moses' hands became very heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Moses and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek. From under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name. The Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. We might read that and we might think, huh. There's a new people that's at war with God's people. But it's not a new it's not a new people. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between your seed and. And her seed. We fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 25. 
Deuteronomy chapter 25, there we hear of Amalek again. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary. And he did not fear God. Let me get this straight. Amalek, a son of Edom, Esau, seems to be continually trying to kill the people of God. Shouldn't surprise us when we get to one of his great, 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 great grandchildren that that would be his response when news from the East comes and says the king of the Jews is here. Therefore, it shall be written, Deuteronomy 25, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies all around in the land, which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, you will blot out from the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, remember, what did God just tell the people, boys and girls? When you are in the land, do not forget. You are to wipe out Amalek. Well, there are a series of battles in the book of Judges. We won't read the whole thing, but let me just read two or three verses to you. In Judges chapter 3, the book of Judges, boys and girls, these ongoing leaders that God raises up before the people are settled in the land with a king. Judges 3, verse 13. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Moving forward, Judges chapter 6, Judges chapter 6, verse 3. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites. And the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. Notice where they're from, (laughs) the east. It's another thing we could trace all the way from Genesis. East, east, east. It's everywhere in the Bible. And troubling news from the east comes to Herod, the Edomite. Judges chapter 7, verse 12. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. Or perhaps Judges chapter 10, verse 12. gets quite clear in the story of the two seeds. Judges 10, verse 12, also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. You see this ongoing battle that walks us through the Bible. We're only at the book of Judges and what do we see? God's people is given a series of promises. The chief of that promise list is that Christ would come from them. But who keeps nipping at their heels all the way along? A people outside of God's saving mercies. Who from an earthly perspective just seem to want to fight for land. But from a spiritual perspective are constantly opposing God's work. 
Well, the people finally have a king, don't they? And what is that king charged with doing? Obeying God's word. We meet their first king, King Saul in 1 Samuel, and listen to what happens. 1 Samuel 15. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice and the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them into Lyme, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But, but, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Saul doesn't kill the leader of the Amalekites when he was explicitly told to do so. This is disobedience, boys and girls. But it's a part of a larger story. Well, the next king comes, and we won't read of all of his exploits, but it's King David. Let me just give you three references. You can look them up. In 1 Samuel 27, verses 8 and 9, David obeys God's call and does wipe out the Amalekites. At least those with whom he was fighting. He battles them. For an entire chapter in 1 Samuel 30. And in 2 Samuel 8, verses 11 through 14, David is pictured as having temporary victory over the Amalekites. Ever wondered, boys and girls, why all the names in the Old Testament are there? Well, it's true history. But it all comes under the promise of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. The story continues past King David. Shortly before the time of the exile, the prophet Obadiah writes an entire book prophesying against the Edomites. The prophet Amos prophesies against them. In fact, turn with me to the book of Amos for just a moment. Amos chapter 1 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. There it is. 
Amos chapter 1, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. But the story continues. Edom and his great grandson Amalek. And all of his great-grandchildren continue to oppress God's people. We read of further oppression even past the time of Daniel. Turn with me to the book of Esther. Esther, chapter 3. You remember the story of Esther? Esther and Mordecai, living at the very end of the time of The return, in chapter 3, we read some very interesting words. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, what is an Agagite? Well, it's a child of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. What did this Haman do? The son, Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gates bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, Mordecai, the Jew, would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. A Hebrew, boys and girls, one of Abraham's seed. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman, and this should sound really familiar, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. And, of course, we meet Herod in Daniel chapter 11, don't we? One of the Edomites, now put in charge, if you will, of Jerusalem. So we've seen the promise. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we've seen many of the people. I know it was a long journey, but verse after verse, the thread continues from the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Edom seeking to crush the people who would bring forth the seed. And I don't want you just to think about this in racial terms. Some people often might take it that way. There is a cosmic reality here. As we've seen in the book of Daniel, there are often angels and principalities behind the conflicts of the world. And what is the ongoing conflict of the world from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the birth of Jesus? Satan believes God when he says, I'm sending my son. And he is at pains to do anything and everything he can do to do what? To wipe out the people who will bring forth the Christ. 
And we're at the very cusp of it in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, aren't we? And one of Esau's great-great-grandchildren receives disturbing news. We have seen the star of the king of the Jews in the east, and we have come to worship him. And Herod does what Haman and Agag and Amalek have done in generations before him. Let's kill off the seed. Well, as we close, we've seen the promise and the people. Let's look at the pattern. Here we'll make three simple observations and we're finished. The pattern. Number one, Satan and his seed from the beginning have sought to harm Christ's people. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is an interesting history lesson. We've walked from Genesis all the way up to about the birth of Jesus. And I kind of see what you mean. There was a people, Edom, Amalek, and, you know, they were kind of against the Jews. But maybe that was just kind of brotherly strife through the ages. Do you know, the book of the Revelation picks up on Genesis 3.15. Turn over with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation there, much like Daniel, gives us pictures. And there, one of the pictures that we see is this great conflict between Satan and the seed of the woman. For those of you that are interested in this particular chapter and want to dive in deep, feel free to go to our sermon catalog and look up. Sermon from Revelation 12. Let me just say at the outset that there are three characters in these verses. The woman, who is not Eve, and who is not Mary. But those images are used, of course. The woman in Revelation 12 is the church. There's a child, and the child is Jesus. And there's a dragon, and the dragon is... Satan. Hear what the text says. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. How was the church pregnant with Christ? Well, it was from the old covenant church, was it not, that Christ was going to come? And Christ and his message to the world comes through who? Today, even the church. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. And just like Haman and Agag and Amalek, what did he do? stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, that is, God's people, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman, that's us, beloved, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. See, what's the summary of Revelation 12? Well, the Messianic community, the community of Christ of both the Old and New Testaments is the community out of which the person and work of Christ comes. 
In Genesis 3.15, Satan is pictured as the, the one who throughout time will be at war and will seek to crush the seed of the woman. However, the lamb triumphs and ascends to his heavenly throne, rendering Satan's sole mission powerless. Satan, the accuser of the saints, no longer has any valid arguments against their justification. You can't be the seed of Christ, you sinner. And though this world, devils filled, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed. He's willed his truth to triumph through us. Like an enemy that has lost, Satan lashes out in rage, though his doom is sure. See, Daniel 11 and the ping pong match is larger than just a few kings between Daniel and Jesus. It is the ongoing thread that runs from God's original promise. I will send him. He will come. He will crush you. And Satan, like a little child who has lost, says, I will have a tantrum and it will spread from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So you wonder today why living for Christ in this world is so difficult? Because Satan and his seed from the beginning have sought to harm Christ's people. You wonder why there are periods in the history of the church where it seems like most Christians are being slaughtered for standing for Christ? You wonder why there are Christ-centered things that are rejected in the world this day? Because God has told us from the beginning, beloved, Satan and his seed from the very beginning will seek to harm Christ and his people. It's the pattern. But secondly... A pattern that we see throughout this eternal struggle is that compromising God's word is the chief weapon in this ancient battle of seeds. Sometimes the battle comes through swords and spears or rifles or bombs. But as we read it in the Bible, what's the the chief weapon? It's compromising what God says. Just, Just listen to a few of the people that had connections with Agag or Edom or Amalek. It starts with Abraham and Sarah, doesn't it? We'll try to bring about the promise sort of our own way. Or Saul. I know that you said to completely destroy, but we'll almost destroy. But there are others in this battle who didn't compromise, like David. Mordecai with Haman. I'm not bowing to him. Perhaps the clearest spiritual example, the most palpable example of Genesis 3.15, writ large, when our Lord and Savior is hungry in the wilderness and the king of the seed of the serpent comes. If you will just bow down and worship me. And our King Jesus does what every other human being hasn't done perfectly. I'm not compromising the word of the living God. 
So compromising God's word is the chief weapon in this ancient battle of seeds. Where are you tempted to compromise God's word, beloved? Where are we tempted? In church life? In home life? But as we close, there's a beautiful, beautiful irony to Esau and Edom. A precious one. And it's our third and final application point. The grace of Christ will prevail for any former seed of Satan. Let me say that one more time. The grace of Christ will prevail for any former seed of Satan. What do I mean? Well, you've heard of all the stories of Amalek and Edom and Esau by now. We've walked through it. Go back one more time to the Old Testament, to the book of Amos. You know, that prophet that was prophesying against the Edomites, bringing the word of God of judgment upon the Edomites, who fulfilled really one of the primary roles of that ancient promise that there's going to be this continual enmity of people who will constantly try to wipe out God's people. What does Amos say in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12? Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle, the tent, the booth of David, which has fallen and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And then look at verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. Amos, did you get that right? Did you hear God correctly? Every time we hear God speak about the Edomites, it comes with a promise of judgment. Are you saying that God is saying that a day is coming when even the Edomites can be brought into the people of God? Yes. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Keep in mind, this is Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. This shows up one other place in the Bible. Acts. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 and verse 16. There is a council because now the gospel is spreading among Jews and Gentiles. Non-Jewish people are hearing the gospel and they're trusting in Christ. And the question among the Jerusalem church is, what do we do with all these Gentiles that are coming in? How do we tell them to live? And James, the leader of the church at that time, stands up and he quotes this passage from Amos about the Edomites. And he says, brothers, this is happening now. The Gentiles are coming The promise of God to bring about His grace to any sinner, even former seed of Satan. It's happening. Look what he says, Acts 15, verse 16. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may see the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. The entire battle of the Old Testament between the Edomites 
and the Israelites is ultimately turned into a glorious plan for God to be seen as one who saves anybody that comes to him through Christ. The New Testament church uses the age-old conflict with Edom as a picture that God's salvation will include all peoples. Get this, beloved. One day, one day, the Old Testament would say, one day, those with Esau's blood in their veins will have Christ's blood on their hearts. You know, friend, you might be here and you might be one who has persecuted Christ and his people your entire life. Either outwardly or in your heart, you may have said, I want nothing to do with your Jesus. But as you come into contact with the word of God and you see that indeed you are a sinner and that there is no hope of eternal salvation for you. The message of the Bible from Genesis all the way till now is that even if you were the worst of the worst, you were one of Edom's people. Christ will take you. He will take you. That's been the plan all along. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. You will... You will bruise his heel. But he, he will crush your head. So yes, King Herod rages when news from the east comes. The king of the Jews is here. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we trace this thread from Genesis through Daniel all the way to Christ... Help us to see that your promise of this enmity is true. And that compromising your word in the midst of this battle will bring even greater struggle. But help us to see that through it all, your grace and the blood of Christ is sufficient for any sinner who comes to him. Lord, may we trumpet as your great church, the Christ who saves sinners. Pray this in Jesus' name.